1: the 350-odd words that comprise this new book, Word Catcher, out of a million English words, incidentally, the standard was surprise. The word had to surprise me on some level, either the sound of it or the origin of it or the hidden meaning or the possibility of reviving the word because we need it today. And The word agony fulfills every one of those requirements. (laughs) Pain, conflict, struggle. Ancient Greece teemed with competition. There were upward of 300 gymnasiums, which incidentally means a place to compete naked. Stadiums and hippodromes, which regularly held a thrilling range of contests from wrestling and chariot racing to sculpture and drama. Collectively, these were called the agonia. The struggle for victory in the games, from the earlier verb, agin, to drive, to lead, to celebrate, and agon, the contest. So fierce were all the contests in ancient Greece that the winners were celebrated, even apotheosized, which is a great old word that means to turn somebody into a god or goddess, while the losers slunk away ignominiously. The visceral memory of these fierce competitions comes down to us in our word, agony, which by the 14th century stretched out to mean wrestling against the fierce opponents of mental anguish, physical torment, even the suffering before death. In the International Journal of Lexicography, Considine writes that the earliest recorded use in English, in Wycliffe's Bible, is the description of Christ in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Companion words include protagonist and antagonist, the two characters pitted against each other in any drama. Or ag- antagonize, which means to put somebody else into agony. Figuratively, then, agony is the heart of all drama, encountering, confronting, and then triumphing. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you, writes Maya Angelou. Seamus Heaney, the, the Nobel Prize winner from Ireland, expanded on this aspect when he translated the great ninth century Anglo-Saxon epic. One way of reading Beowulf is to think of it as three Agons in a hero's life. Curiously, it's also a word in science. An agonist is a drug that activates the cell molecules in a way that replicates their natural processes. In China, the writhing of tea leaves in the bottom of a teacup when hot water is poured on it is called the agony of the leaf. And then last but not least, on Star Trek, agonizers were red glowing weapons used on those who had committed minor offenses, while those who were guilty of major ones were sent to the agony booth. Phil Kusno is an award-winning writer
0: and filmmaker, teacher and editor, lecturer and travel leader, storyteller and TV host. His books include Stroking the Creative Fires, once and Future Myths, The Art of Pilgrimage, The Olympic Odyssey, and The Hero's Journey. His newest book is Word Catcher. Thank you for joining me, Phil. Well, you're talking to the right man if you want to talk about words. <laughs> it, it's such a fascinating subject, and you know we seem to be in the midst of a renaissance of books about language. Um, there's a I've seen more than a few. Uh, grammar books. uh, One recently came out called, Woe is I, (laughs) and and there's a book out now about a a pair of men who call themselves TEAL, the Typo Elimination Action League. They struck out across the country in a van, eliminating public typos, (laughs) and you have brought us a wonderful book that's a collection of, of words and their histories, and words that are sound fun, words that are fun and surprising looks at words that we think we know.
1: Thank you. Wonderful introduction. I know I'm going to have a good conversation when I'm being compelled to think of something in a new way. And the idea that we are possibly more interested in words than ever before is a is a fresh start because there is a lot of uh, woebegone thinking in the culture that people don't care about language anymore. Hence the decline of bookstores, book sales. Uh, magazines and newspapers but i feel it's the other way around you, you don't have to look any further than your own ipad in front of you right now or the explosion on facebook where people are compelled to tell their stories share their stories and how do you do that through words so one of the promptings for this book is a is a passion for language, books, bookstores, that entire culture that I've been in since I was a boy. But it it occurs to me that you can't save books, you can't save bookstores, you can't save newspapers and magazines and radio shows unless you first love words. That's where it all begins. Uh, That's how I grew up in a little house outside of Detroit, Michigan, where we actually turned the television off every Friday and Saturday night and read books out loud together. And if there was a word that me or my brother or my sister did not understand, my parents had a very good pedagogic trick. They just didn't show off and say, well, you dummy, why don't you know that – uh, such and, uh, rapscallion comes from the old Latin, which means, no, instead they said we spent $30 on a random house dictionary that could be a wheel stop for a 747 and you have to walk across the green carpeted living room and look that word up yourself. Now when you look back, you think that was really clever because what did it do? It gave us kids the, the, the sense of accomplishment and that sense of oh, the aha. So that It's where the word comes from. So that's what it means. And in essence, that's what I'm trying to do with this new book, Word Catcher. Give people just enough of the etymology and just enough of a great story and the way that a word has been used in history so that they can have the aha and give themselves that little meandering walk across their own living room the next time.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, one of the things that that, uh, interests me is the uh, epigraph uh, for the book. Um, Samuel Johnson, words are daughters of the earth. And I think that's a really interesting turn of phrase.
1: Well, Johnson is w- one of my heroes. I've loved him since I was a boy. When I lived in London, I actually visited his house a few times. And now I'm of a, I'm a French extraction, as you might guess, with a name like Cousineau. But the notion that it took one man, Dr. Samuel Johnson, 17-odd years to write the first English dictionary in 1753, and then the French, being so inspired, looking at this magnificent endeavor and accomplishment, struck out to write their own or compiled their own French dictionary, and it took something like 40 writers, lexicographers, 30 years to write the French dictionary. So he's been a hero of mine for a long time. And yet that little insight is so gorgeous that, that words are daughters of the earth. And after spending years looking up the stories, the backstories of all these words, and coming to the realization that many of our words were actually coined by women— wives at home who had to very carefully look at the life around them. They were detail-oriented. They they came up with most of the words we have for the animals out in the fields for different kinds of weather. While the men were out there either waging war or plowing the fields, the women were at home with the, honing a great sense of attention for the objects in the house. They're the ones who probably came up with most of the proverbs that we have, the, the riddles that we still tell each other after all these centuries. So that was a great insight by Johnson.
0: You know, one of the things that this book really does is it lets us understand that in a single word encapsulates so much more than a single word. Every word is a story, has a story,
1: tells a story. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to accomplish here. There are many and magnificent books out about the the etymologies of words. And even some books that are debating whether or not it was Latin, Anglo-Saxon, or Greek, and th- those have been fun. But for me, it begins and ends with story. Some are are simply fun words. It, to me, it's fun when I talk to kids about this. Uh, I ask them, "What do you th- What do you think of as the longest word in the English dictionary?" And some kids were actually raised with the same word. I was back growing going to a French Catholic school in Detroit in the fifties. Anti-disestablishmentarianism, see? You, you can lip sync that with me. However, we've discovered that there is a word that's three letters longer in the English dictionary. Flux and So, you see, wow, you, you laugh, it. I laugh. That's the beginning. If, we, uh, if a smile comes on our face, when we hear a word, we're halfway home. Just to hear someone say, did you feel that zephyr flowing over Athens today? A zephyr, it's such a beautiful word. It's one of the nine gods of the winds in ancient Greece. So it's a beautiful word that feels marvelous coming out of your own mouth. And then you realize the story, a zephyr was a god. Does, that enriches the whole word, doesn't mm-hmm. it? So those are two standards. One, let's have some fun with language. For example, I was always fascinated growing up as a kid, going riding bikes with my fellow, with my buddies, and looking over at somebody. If you get going fast enough, you can see the spokes of the, the other bicycle moving forward in one hand, and if you reach a certain space speed, the spokes look like they're going backwards. Maybe you've seen that riding a motorcycle or a, a truck driver's wheels—they seem to be going backwards. It's called kinophantom. kinna like kinetics and kinesthetics, and a phantom. So there are words that fill gaps, words that have that are marvels, and there. But, but there are others that are just beautiful, like murmur, zephyr, and then there's the stories. Companion is one of the simplest words we use it constantly. Mm-hmm. It's often a uh, uh, a substitute word for a lover. We just don't know what to call so-and-so on our arm going to the restaurant. But companion is, is a great word, too. It, means you, it's a, it can mean a buddy, a close friend. But beneath all that is something, to me, that's majestic. For millennia, you can go back and read references in the Old Greek Myths and the Old Testament as well. If a stranger knocks on your door, probably right up until around the 19th century in Europe, and you answered that door and you asked that stranger to come in, cross your threshold, come into your home, you were obligated at that point to treat this stranger as if he or she were family and friends. And then the moment you actually broke bread together, you were under a certain kind of civil law that said, You have to take care of this person. You have to be kind to that person. So what arrives at us all these years later is companion. With the P-A-N in the center of companion, the old French word for bread. Bread. The moment you break bread with someone, you are friends. So you can have a beer with somebody. You can go to a ball game. You can do this and that. But there's a moment that is still uh, has some some spirit, some deep vital force in it. Here, have some bread. Pass the bread. Think of what happens in our voice when we say that. It's not the same thing as, hey, throw the relish, right? (laughs) You say, would you like to break bread? Now, isn't that fantastic to me? Or a simple word like trivia. uh, Trivial pursuit. Break it down. It means three roads. Tri-via. And what it refers to is a phenomena throughout human history, anytime there is a crossroad where paths crossed, probably earlier animal paths and then coach paths and horse paths and then car paths, walking paths, you see somebody else probably walking in the other direction, you stop and you say, how are you? Where are you from? Where's the weather from where you're from? Is there any trouble up ahead? Is there a place that I can stay? You begin begin to toss around trivia. They're the words that are passed at the crossroads of life.
0: One of the things that is just so uh, remarkable about this book is, the, and you do this very well, is to to make us really uh, re-examine what words mean in our lives and, and what they evoke in terms of words suggest a huge a spiritual underpinning and a connection that is beyond words, that they evoke the myths and and the, the commonalities that we share. And when we go back to these derivations, when we go back to those roots, we get underneath our own skins.
1: Oh, that's beautifully put. Beautifully put. Two examples there. The spirit behind a word. A simple a word as focus. We use it when we're ourselves on the head, why can't you focus better today? What do you need, a cup of coffee? Or you tell your, the kids in your, in your classroom, if you're a teacher, focus, pay attention. Or then we'll say, isn't Michael Jordan's focus ferocious on the basketball court? So we use it in different ways and it always has a very specific meaning. And what it means is to be able to pay attention to one thing for a, a necessary period of time. You back up a word like that all the way to its origins in Latin, and it first meant the fireplace or the hearth. So you say, okay, that's interesting, but go deeper into that. What does that mean? Focus, fireplace, hearth, the fire, people gathering around a fire. What do you do when you look into a fire? You probably don't crane your neck and look all around the room. We've all been in front of fires camping or a fire in a beautiful country inn or our own homes. What do you do? You get lost in your thoughts. Often it um, It stimulates... your attention. It deeply pulls you in, draws your attention. I would guess the impulse behind a word like that is at least 100,000 years old. It probably goes back into our Paleolithic past in which is one of the things that saved us are the notion of everyone in the tribe or the clan gathered around a fire, talking about the same thing. where When should we plant? Where are the animals this summer? How are we going to survive the winter? All of that is built in, condensed, and compressed into a simple word-like focus. I think that's majestic. It's so much fun.
0: Uh, to to read this book too because it's very funny and there's lots of words that when you hear them you know they're funny and I love and and I never knew this before the derivation of preposterous (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) preposterous absurd ludicrous inane a marvel of a word both literarily and pop culturally every time I cross it Every time I come across it, I can't help but hear Snaggletooth's lisping voice in the old Warner Brothers cartoon, preposterous. His mincing pronunciation actually helps us break it down so we can appreciate its surreal meaning even more. It derives from the Latin prey, P-R-A-E, before imposterous, coming after. So something is preposterous because it seems bass backwards, as my Uncle Sai used to say. The great English dictionary maker Skeet says uh, hindsight before, which lends an image of an animal walking back Words into an onlooker or a hunter. So something is preposterous if it's already happened and yet it's bound to happen again. To say it another way, if you don't know whether you're coming or going, you're in an absurd or preposterous situation. Herman Melville of Moby Dick fame wrote bitingly, Of all the preposterous assumptions of humanity over humanity, nothing exceeds most of the criticisms made on the habits of the poor by the well-housed and well-fed. Kurt Vonnegut Jr., one of my favorite writers, writes, Any reviewer who expresses rage or loathing for a novel is preposterous. He or she is like a person who has put on a full suit of armor and attacked a hot fudge Sunday. <laughs> so that, that, that's one. You see, it's, some, sometimes words are trying to capture something that is so nuanced, a simple one-syllable word just won't do. So they become uh, poor man toes, which is a word invented by Lewis Carroll and referred to in an, an, a, a steamer trunk in which you would put the clothes that you would use for the next six, next six months on the QE2. So you've got several different compartments and drawers, and that's often how language is assembled. Words are put together, especially if you're trying to capture a, a, a sentiment like that. Something is preposterous because you can only understand it by reaching backwards and forwards at the same time.
0: Now, um, I'd like to ask you, too, about the. you must have done a lot of research for this book. Um, Talk about researching words and then taking, you know, what can be somewhat dry etymology and lexicography and looking down other paths because you bring in a lot of stuff beyond what you're going to find in the dictionary. Well,
1: great. Thank you. Well, first of all, I have been collecting words really all my life. I remember being hired for my first Newspaper job at 16 years old at the Wayne Dispatch outside Detroit and taking notes at a ball game I was covering for the paper and bringing in my notes at midnight rather than my completed story and my editor looking at me and saying, I know you played ball today. I know you were in school all day, but Phil, it ain't real until it's ink. (laughs) <laughs> and I felt so so humiliated but I also understood that he was right on that I had to do something with those notes I had to turn the notes into the story before it was really real and from that point on I began assembling my notes in books but also writing notes in the back of every book I've read since I was 16 so I take notes at the at at the back and then write an essay about what the book actually meant to me so I can put it in my own words and then I'll look up all those words that were arcane and are now germane <laughs> to, to, to my life and in that way I'm not just baffled, a good word in the book, but I come to love the word and I'm able to use it without appearing pretentious about it because that's the trick. Can you use a, a gorgeous word in such a way that people aren't intimidated about it, but they want to learn more? For example, gorgeous, one of my favorite words. And what a great
0: word you write about, too. Oh,
1: uh, this is one I, I love. through the Through the Middle Ages – there were many injunctions against women bearing any skin in public. There, there, were something, there were something called sumptuary laws where you could only wear certain kinds of cloth. Certain, certain colors were actually forbidden, like purple. And there were so many of these rules, regulations, and laws that before you knew it, women more than men were strapped right up to the neck. You couldn't see any skin on any women for centuries. And then women learned that if they loosen the collar a little bit and they stretched their neck a certain bit when they were talking with a lover or with someone that they were courting, that little extra bit of neck could actually make a man fall in love with you. That's what gives us our word gorgeous because it's rooted in the old French, gorge, which means to gorge. It gives us gorget, which is the, the, uh, the, the gold uh, pediment around, uh, around your neck. Uh, and gorgeous, I think of Lucille Ball. She says, she says uh, every man should be able to fall in love once with a gorgeous redhead. (laughs) Being a gorgeous redhead, you can actually say that. So you you look at a word like that and you understand that there there is a reason so often, I'd say 99 out of 100 times, if a word moves you beyond what seems apparent in the conversation or in print in the book, look it up. There is a reason why it's moving you tectonically. There are words that have come down down the log flume ride right of history, so to speak, to us laden with deep meaning. I used the word baffle just a, s- a few seconds ago. What is it? Baffle means to be confused. But why don't why why isn't the word confused just enough for us? Because there's another feeling that's even deeper, and that is the feeling of being upside down. Oh, when I fell in love, fell in love with her, I, I felt like the whole world turned upside down on me. Or when I was laid off, it's as if the world turned topsy-turvy. You see, that's a little different than just saying you're confused. That's the origin of baffle, because baffle goes back to an old torture for medieval knights who have disgraced the crown. And when that happened, they were hung upside down by their ankles in front of the Tower of London for three days. And this was called the baffling torture. So the word comes down to us. It's seven or 800 years. We don't need to know about the Tower of London anymore or these disgraceful nights, but we still feel upside down once in a while in our life. And that word fulfills exactly that nuanced set of emotions.
0: As does the word topsy-turvy, which you also <laughs> give us.
1: Yeah. It's, that's, I, I lived out in Ireland for a while in the early 1980s in a house without electricity, In a house on the west coast near the Atlantic where I had to go out into the turf fields, the bogs, and actually dig my own turf, put it in a straw basket, bring it back to the turf shed so that it could dry. And that would be my fuel for this house. Well, there was an old technique out there where you would turn the turf that you cut for your fire upside down after it rained, so that the rain would uh, fall slowly off the turf. Otherwise, if you know an island, if it ain't raining, it's about to rain, right? <laughs> so the turf would never dry unless you paid great attention to the weather and you had someone home say, oh, I have to go and turn the turf. That gives us our phrase topsy-turvy, to overturn the turf so it can dry and we can have some heat tonight. <laughs> And speaking of rain, you know, there's some <laughs> wonderful
0: new words that I've never heard in here. And, and one of them is, I, is petrichor, the smell of rain rising from the earth. What a beautiful word. And what a that whole word encapsulates such a gorgeous feeling. Uh, uh,
1: who hasn't f- felt like they had to swoon after a rainstorm, probably in a city more than the country, when the rain hits the asphalt or the sidewalk, and then an unusual smell starts to rise off of the street or the road that 's made me swoon since I was a kid i 'm all every time I smell it i 'm back in the Michigan of my boyhood. Well, I never dreamed that there was a word for this, but it turns out two Australian anthropologists in the early nineteen seventies felt well if there isn't a word we have to come up with one. So they took the old word for stone in Latin petra and Icor, which is a really an amazing choice, but the Icor was the the blood that ran through the gods. And that's what made the gods immortal. It was called the ichor. So they put the two of these together to, as, as much to say there is something immortal that's coming off of the stone or the, the uh, cement roads of our lives. Now, that's respect for language where you try to fill these gaps because you look around and say, isn't there a word? There's got to be a word for uh, another example for that in, in my book that I, I really love is shantiplur. That's one that just staggers me. And it refers to the feeling you might have when you listen to Edith Piaf. Uh, or you see the movie that won the Academy Award a couple of years ago with an amazing performance. And some of those were Je ne Gr- songs, Je, uh, Je regret rien, you, your heart wants to soar, but at the same time, you want to weep. I, my son has gone to cathedral school for boys in San Francisco for the first his first nine years. And every Christmas we go to hear the famous Christmas concert at Grace Cathedral. And your heart again wants to take wing. But at the same time, you look, these are fourth, fifth, sixth grade boys singing like angels. And you want to cry. Well, what, did that just take me 70 or 80 words to describe this very complex feeling in us that wants to laugh and shout or, or laugh and cry at the same time? The French coined the word "chantepleur," which means to sing and to cry at the same time. So when you hear that, well, what's that wonderful old word, uh, the, the tremolo? One of my favorite words. I sh- should have put it in the book, but certain singers can bring that tremolo um, Blues singers will have it, a John Lee Hooker, Ella Fitzgerald had it, Edith Piaf. The tremolo usually suggests there are many emotions happening at one time. But then if you know language better and better and better, you just say, well, isn't she a great (laughs) chantepleur?"
0: One of the things that that interests me is um, about words, and we see this in a few of your uh, entries, is that words make journeys through our culture. Um, You know, they'll start out meaning one thing, and then for a while they'll be in use with another and then back down and around. I mean, one obvious suggestion is is cool, but you talk about crazy in this book, and and I think that that has a very interesting word journey, and those word journeys are really, they tell us something about who we are.
1: All I believe all words have come down to us on a long journey. And it behooves us to understand and respect the journey and to pass on the stories. You can pass on the stories over Thanksgiving dinner. You can pass them on to your, your students. But crazy is an, is an example of what happens when the culture is feeling a phenomena and can't put a, a finger on it. I realized this a few years ago when I wrote a book on synchronicity called uh, Coincidence or Destiny, and I put a a call out, so to speak, around the world for stories, and I had hundreds and hundreds of uh, submissions where people said, so that's what it's called. When I was thinking about somebody and the phone rang, right? Or I was telling a story about somebody on the streets of Paris of a friend of mine in Brooklyn. We turned the corner, and there he was sitting in the French cafe. Well, Jung coins the word synchronicity to describe not just any coincidence, but a deeply meaningful coincidence that could actually give you a hint. What uh, James Hillman, the psychologist, calls a sly wink of fate. (laughs) <laughs> and this is often what happens with words. So there's an old word that comes down from the Norse, uh, kraza, which means to crackle. And it refers to the, the crackle in the fire, but also the crackle in a sword when it's being annealed, the the crackle in armor when it's being pierced in battle. There's a great deal of weight behind that word. But that word slowly came into European culture, Western European culture, when we began talking about psychology, and it became a science in which psychology literally literally means the, the the study of the soul. It's not just fixing things and fixing people. It's a it's an examination. It's an attempt at healing the soul, and when people under the, the guidance of Jung and Otto and Freud and others began to reveal how much is happening subconsciously and how some people are cracked on the outside or cracked on the inside. We needed a word to describe that. And so you go hunting out there and well, well-read men like Freud and Jung knew well the old Norse myths and they were able to bring a word like that down. So It it can happen in other ways, too. But three or four years ago, my dear friend Gary Ryan, with whom I wrote and and directed six different films on Native American spiritual issues, died in a plane crash. It was a terrible incident. And I wanted to write about this, and I couldn't at first. And everything was so confessional. I couldn't get it. couldn't quite get to it. But then I found myself in Iceland on a film shoot and reading as I'm sure you would and everybody would. The old Greek sagas, (laughs) right? Doesn't everybody read those? And in the middle of reading one of these old stories, I saw that the, the Norse gave us the word anger. I had been feeling angry about my best friend's death. But how do you write out of anger? You have to be very careful. You need to write in a way that someone else can see it through it transparently so you can feel your own emotions. And here I found that the old Viking word, A-N-G-R, referred to something noble. And it was this, it's the emotion you sense when you experience the injustices of the world. And it says, and the saga goes on to say, and if you have not felt true anger, you are still unborn. And so I wrote this poem, a tribute poem to my friend, Gary Ryan, called The True Source of Anger. And in it, I said, I'm trying to avoid rage here, which can be dangerous, right? Rage is the red face of the god Ares or Mars. That can destroy us or destroy the people around us. But if you haven't felt anger about the oil spill today or the the state of the economy, you, you can pick your issue. You are still unborn. Now, to me, this is an example of being alert and sensitive to language. Let's hold Maybe you have to sit on an experience for a while before you actually write about it. So you search and you search until you find just the right word. And sometimes sometimes if you don't, you haven't captured the story specifically. For example, there is a well-known golfer who has been accused of philandering. We all know who this is. Many women, what? Sixteen, twenty women have stepped forward and described him as a philanderer. Well, philanderer is an okay word, but I think the guy gets off scot-free with just being called a a philanderer. That's softening the charges a bit. However, Dr. Johnson can save us again here. He he identified a word in Shakespeare, bedswerver. This is someone who swerves from the marriage bed, jumps from bed to bed to bed to bed. See, that, this is a word that you immediately see, and it captures. Boom! That's exactly what's happening here. Someone is swerving from the marriage vows.
0: <laughs> a single word can be so powerful, can invoke so much, and I'm thinking of the word odyssey. There's a word that in a single word evokes a myth,
1: a story, a, a culture, an adventure. Thank you. That's one of my favorites, of course. I grew up on Homer's knee, as they used to say, and what it referred to reading books out loud with your family. It's, it's a beautiful metaphor, I feel. And we read Homer, The Iliad and the Odyssey Out Loud, a page apiece in my family growing up. And I've used it ever since. I've led many trips around Greece in the footsteps of Homer. And Odyssey has become one of the, the central metaphors in my life. But it's it's different from other forms of, of travel. You have travel which has its origins in travail. And under underneath that is the word trapalium, the old word for the medieval rack. Within that simple single word travel comes this notion that travel can either torture you or stretch you, depending on your flexibility. See how we can play with words here? So that's real travel.
0: Hey, they you about airlines
1: it's centuries <laughs> yes. before. Ah, right. uh, it, to be a tourist simply means to make a round. You leave home, you go on a circle, you come home again. Thomas Cook invented that word of Thomas Cook Traveler's Checks. But the an odyssey has a mythic and spiritual and psychological component and it has become a metaphor for a long journey that changes everything. Not just, it wasn't just fun like a club med trip or a family vacation, let's go home to see grandma and grandpa, right? Or a, a, a cooler than thou trip, what, what's, what's the hippest destination in Europe today? Well, let's all go to Budapest. Nobody goes to Paris anymore. The Odyssey is something else. It's it's in it, it's a journey in which you don't know the outcome when you leave. You have to endure great struggles like Odysseus did in Homer's in Homer's epic. And yet there there's another element to it that comes through in the translation when when the story went to the Romans, when the Romans took over the Greek empire, Odysseus became Ulysses. And Ulysses in old Latin means "thigh scar. Why is that cool? Why is that important? Well, as a boy he 's wounded in the thigh by a boar, and there is something in the psychology of heroes throughout time, from Odysseus right up to Batman and Superman today. Batman, by the way, celebrating his seven hundredth anniversary this week, as in seven hundred issues of the comic book. <laughs> But the heroic behavior is always the idea that a young hero, man or woman, is wounded in childhood. Something happens. It's your relationship with your parents. could be war. It could be economics. But there's a deep, deep wound there that you have to overcome in your life. Otherwise, you're just going to be ordinary. You're just going to be immortal. That's what's behind the Odyssey. That there the is Odyssey
0: a, is a journey that's internal as well as external.
1: Beautiful. That's absolutely right. It's... It's, uh, my old friend Joseph Campbell, with whom I worked for many years, uh, said that that a sacred journey is traversing the physical land, but it's also going into the human heart. So if you're only looking at the famous sites on the outside, that's, that's fun. That can be an entertaining few weeks away from your home. But if you are also going into your own story, what would this have meant to my father? right? Where does this place me in the whole realm of Kuzinos? You start asking questions like this. You're probably more on an odyssey. And, and this book, in a sense, is an odyssey for
0: you because it begins with your earliest memories of your family and your earliest word, love of words, and you bring that right back to the forefront. This is kind of uh, you turning your own heart inside out, isn't it?
1: Well, thank you. That's beautifully put. That's exactly right. When I was asked to create the book it was a great moment at Tosca's in North Beach in San Francisco and my editor Brendan Knight said so Phil what do you want to write now and that was one of those hey i've arrived moments because rather than always trying to twist arms you really need this book you should publish my next work they asked what do you want to write about and i knew without any hesitation i i want to write a book of word stories not just origins but i want to tell the stories of words because that's been uh, my lot in life since I really left Michigan. If I coach baseball, youth baseball, so I tell stories. Where does the word fungo come from, kids, when I'm hitting fungos to them? For those of you who aren't baseball lovers, that's when you toss a ball up in the air and you whack it with the bat and hit it as far as you can so that kids can practice catching fly balls. It's a beautiful thing. I still love the sight of the white baseball against the blue sky. It's still a marvel to me. Well, it's a word that goes – it's in the book, listeners, too. Fun goes in, the word catcher. And I have dated it all the way back to 1867. And it's probable – if you look in the OED, the venerable Oxford – Dictionary, it will say o dot o dot o, which means of obscure origin, which is another way. It's a euphemism for saying we haven't found it yet. We don't know. But in cricket, there's an old tradition of tossing a cricket ball up in the air and then whacking it, and the guy who whacks the ball says, "Fungo, go have some fun running after the ball." Isn't that fantastic? So I tell a story like that to the kids when I'm playing ball. What's the origin of the word catch? Do you know it goes all the way back to medieval hunters, and it means to seize. We're going to catch some prey. We're going to catch that rabbit or that deer. That comes all the way down to us in playing catch with with the kids. So if I'm playing ball with the kids or if I'm giving a a lecture on – how the Odyssey still influences movies today like Apocalypse Now or Heart of Darkness i'll say well let's go in let's play with these words I'll play with the words a little bit, and I think it opens up our discussions, opens up our sense of delight about language, otherwise we're putting putting the kibosh on our love of words and I'm glad you asked me. Where does "kibosh" come from? <laughs> okay, yes, you tell us, I'm sure. <laughs> it, it's an old Irish word for what happens at a, at a wake, and the cover of the person who's just at the cover of the coffin is opened, and you look at the corpse inside, and you and traditionally you would have a black cap. That someone in the family, mother, father, brother, wife, husband, whatever, would go over and they would have the honors of putting the hat on the dead one to send away into immortality. And the hat was called the kibosh. Wow. So when we say, oh, you know, we were in dealings with trying to sell the business the other day, but he came in with an offer. He put the kibosh on our offer. See the way that we use it? It's boom. It's over. It's over. See what? See the, the the depth of that feeling that I just used to describe. That goes all the way back to Irish wakes.
0: <laughs> it, it, it's dead, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Back to Star Trek. There you now, go. Now, <laughs>
1: um, one of
0: the things that interests me about your book, and uh, I think the perception we take away after immersing ourselves in all these wonderful words, is that it's kind of like looking at apocalypse now and seen the cave paintings that from when, whence it ultimately derived.
1: Wow, that's something. I, I read that when the, those first caves were opened in the south of France and in the northern Spain, Picasso went, I believe, to the caves in northern Spain. And when he emerged, apparently there were were reporters there and asked him what he thought about what he saw. And he said something to the effect of, We haven't learned anything. (laughs) It's all been done before. Look at those paintings. And apparently it was difficult for him to go home and paint for a while because he saw that there wasn't what you generally think of as progress. That's been part of the Western myth, quote, unquote, myth, this notion that we are on this kind of escalator to Satori. (laughs) That's Western culture, Western momentum, Western genius, pushing us further and further away from our depraved past. And then you look at the glory of the language of Beowulf or Chaucer, or you look at those cave paintings and you say, Vermeer is magnificent. I love Rembrandt. But have we really progressed from these paintings? And there's something like that in words as well. If you listen to the melody of Greensleeves, one of my father—I remember his father's favorite song—and then realize that the the words that were put to "Green Sleeves," I think date back to about the eleventh century. And it's such a beautiful love song. Is there anything like that being written today? Now you can argue one way or the other, but. The point of doing this kind of excavation, if you will, into language, into dictionaries, is finding out that I believe there has been poetry in every generation. There has been a sense of song and melody. Some of it has survived. Many words, of course, were just thrown off deciduously like leaves falling off a tree but some have come down to us. Acnesis. We lost acnesis, and we need acnesis. <laughs> yes.
0: that's, uh, 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 maybe not with a back scratch. <laughs>
1: that, that's a good one. But, but then there are some that we can still borrow from. For example, what do you say when you look at someone and you can't quite place their name? It's there somewhere. You're scratching. Oh, like with the back scratcher, right? We don't have a word in English, but the Scots do. They have the word tartle. So you're at a cocktail party or at the pub, and you introduce a bunch of people around, and someone is saying, dah, dah, dah. and And then Jeff will say, oh, do you see? He's tartling, lad. He's tartling. <laughs> because he's forgotten the name. So that would be a wonderful word to bring back. Because this happens to people all the time. mm -mm. Uh, I was stricken with pneumonia. In Scotland a few years ago in the middle of a film shoot, I ended up going into a hospital and I was just a basket case. And I remember a couple of nurses helping me into the hospital room and another one passing them by and say, I did you see the yank herpling in today? <laughs> Herple apparently is an old, old, old word for limping. Well, limp is a fun word, but it's it's such a cliche. There isn't much meaning or or flavor or juice in that word anymore, right? Limping around, limping, limping. It's a limp word, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee, if you say, "Hey, I saw my wife herping across the threshold today, or herping into the car," that will bring a, a sense of delight to somebody. And maybe it'll work. Maybe it maybe it won't. But it means we can be playful with words and. One of the anecdotes I love telling in this new book, Word Catcher, it goes back to W.H. Auden, one of the great English poets of the 20th century. And apparently he was cajoled over and over and over again to teach a class on poetry, but he didn't like many writers, by the way, didn't believe that you could actually teach it. Painters, musicians too, they say you're born with it and you have a fire or you don't. Otherwise, I'm just taking your money. But apparently he finally relented and he offered to take a lead a course in poetry in london 200 prospective students applied and he chose 20 and later he was asked how how did you choose 20 people 20 students and he said i just chose those who loved words now that's really something to me if you think about all the emphasis we have on accomplishment. Oh, so and so got into law school because of good grades. Or so and so got into art school over here because a grandfather owned the school, whatever 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 it might be. But how often do we use that as the as the standard? He loved baseball and that's why he's the 25th man on my team. They she loved words and that's why I picked her. And some, I think someone will grow into words that way.
0: Well, one of the things I think that's so wonderful about this book is the way that we it helps us understand that when you're looking at definitions of words and, and thinking about the definitions of words, what you're also really thinking about is you're defining yourself.
1: Interesting you put it that way because... There's a phenomena in language, I believe the term is echolalia, and it refers to that phenomena that we all hear on the bus, on the boardwalk, here in Santa Cruz, at parties, when someone will say, oh, I saw that movie the other night, and it was like, you know, I mean, it was I was like, yeah, wow, you know what I mean. (laughs) It's this searching, you can feel there's some pathos in it, so I don't want to make fun of it, but there's real pathos there. Someone is looking probably for a colorful expression. Avatar changed my life. It was dazzling. Or a a metaphor. Avatar was to this era what Gone with the Wind was to the 1940s. You're reaching for some kind of expression, but you can't unless you've read. You will not find that simile or the metaphor or that sparkling image or the word behind the word the word behind the story, unless you've been paying attention for a while. And if you haven't, it's very hard to communicate well. And this ends up being painful. When you're in a relationship with somebody, it could be a marriage or a love relationship or a relationship at work, and you end up saying, yeah, but what I meant was. How often does that happen in our communication? It happens over and over again. So part of my, my, um, Mission in this book, I say you might describe it as, is to spread some of my joy and enthusiasm that words are both precise and loose enough to be colorful. Uh, I'm dazzled by the fact that the English language just recorded its one millionth word recently. Now, if you're not, if you don't know how to put that into perspective, think that in a Chinese dictionary, you will only find 80,000 words. Those can be joined and coupled together, and you have rich, rich, rich associations after that. The French language, as wonderful as it is, has three hundred to 400,000 words. German, 500,000. We have a million words in English now, partially because of the way it was first formed with the Anglo-Saxons and the French from Normandy coming in to give us that, but now it's also immigration. We have so many words. The word boondocks from the Philippines, one of my favorite in this book. It it, it refers to uh, the mountains in the north of Luzon. How did it come to America? The Bataan Death March. Hundreds and hundreds of GIs captured by the Japanese, a handful of them actually escaped. While the rest of them died in those camps during World War II. And the ones who did escape made their way up into the northern mountains of Luzon. And when they came home three, four, five years later, someone would say, Hey, Joe, hey, Jeff, where were you? And they would say, Man, I was the farthest reaches of civilization you can imagine. I was out in the boondocks. Isn't that something? So rather than just say farthest reaches of civilization the culture really always 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 wants to shorten <laughs> always so for those gi's to come back and say boondocks saved us a lot of breath <laughs> and and that's partially what i'm trying to do in the book bring some joy bring a sense of dazzlement behind do i have time for one more story with this one that i remember from being a boy was shanghai I remember reading Jack London's wonderful book, Sea Wolf with the family and feeling like I was being transported around the world in this book. And then years and years later, I move into North Beach in San Francisco and I'm learning the neighborhood, learning some stories as I want to do. And I go into one of the one of the, the oldest bars, the saloon. It goes back to the Civil War. And they told me, uh, uh, careful, that's where the, the deadfall was over there. So what the heck's a deadfall? So say, don't you know this is where the this is where the uh, the old ship captains used to Shanghai, the sailors. What do you mean Shanghai? Well, the story goes that those ships that came from the East Coast down around Cape Horn all the way up past Valparaiso, Chile, to San Francisco, with pianos and wine and dresses. From the East Coast to trade for buffalo hides up here and so on. Later, with gold, they um, often it would take three or four years, and you would lose roughly half your sailors. Thrown overboard, died on the ship, or just went awol somewhere. Let's say in Valparaiso, Chile. When the ships arrived in in the San Francisco Bay, they were depleted of sailors, and so the captains. Um, worked out a deal, so they were in cahoots, a great old Irish word by the way, to um, to get the sailors drunk. They would come in and they would spend three years of wages in three or four days in the North Beach San Francisco bars. They would get drunk. Sometimes a Mickey Finn, remember that old word for a little drug, and amphetamine of some kind, would be tossed into the beer or the wine. And then they were pushed down the deadfall. They would Drop to the bottom of the bar, and the, the ship captains would come in and grab six or seven or eight of these guys, d- completely drugged out of their mind, take them back on the ship and let them dry out there, and they would awaken a few days later halfway to Shanghai. <laughs> so, so that is coming full circle. So, for, for, so thank you for making that observation. My boyhood fascination, Dad. Dad, what does Shanghai mean? what an amazing word. Philip, go to the dictionary. That's why I bought the darn thing. <laughs> and here, I still have the wherewithal to ask that question in a San Francisco bar. Did you just say Shanghai? What, what? What does that mean? So the whole story comes pouring out to me. So maybe that's the the moral of the of the lesson here. That the it's one thing to learn an interesting etymology. Um desultory for example I, I love the fact it goes back to those guys like Ben-Hur in the movie who could leap from horse to horse to horse in those chariot races mm-hmm. they, they were called desultors, and now that word comes to us to describe someone who leaps from topic to topic to topic to topic it's got it's origins in in the old hippodromes <laughs> the old chariot races of the Romans Isn't that's amazing to me I'll never see the Ben-Hur movie the same way <laughs> Well, that's part of the joy of this, isn't it? So, God, I can never read that word the same way or never hear that word in a song or see that movie the same way. So that's the gift my parents gave me, my teachers going to school in Detroit, a lot of focus on the beauty of words, not just being cleverer than thou, but the beauty of words, which allows us to have a sense of delight when we're actually in conversation with each other.
0: And a wonderful conversation with Phil Cousineau. His newest book is Word Catcher. Thank you for joining me, Phil. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.